episode of the PBQ Slush Pile. We take more time than other editorial boards, but we stand behind our methodology so much so that we're going to share our process with you through this podcast. Welcome to the editorial table. My name is Marion Wren. I'm the co-editor of Painted Bright Quarterly, and I am uh, brought to you by a fabulous form of technology uh, that allows me to speak to you from NYU and Abu Dhabi. Um, and I'm joined in this episode, this podcast, by a number of editors who are far-flung and close-knit. So we're going to go to the editorial table in Philadelphia and hear from our colleagues in Philadelphia. Hi, my name is Tim Fitz, and I teach here at Drexel and at Penn State and at Curtis and at Temple. And I'm a novelist and short story writer, and I'm happy to say that my novel, The Soju Club, came out a couple weeks ago in South Korea. Ooh, and, uh, wow. so that's, that's nice. Very exciting. Hardest yeah. working man in showbiz. <laughs> and to my right is Sarah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Eichert. I am a third-year English major at Drexel University, which is where we are at right now. And I'm the current editorial assistant for PBQ. And I think I'm throwing this to Jason. Hi, it's Jason Schneiderman. I am associate editor at Painted Bride Quarterly. And I think I can now say, along with Miriam Heyer, I co-head the New York staff. I think we're, we're sharing that duty now. Um, and I'm actually coming to you from Tribeca because I had to come into the office because I had to go to a holiday party um, shortly after this podcast. Okay, you have to tell us, are you wearing something festive? I am. I'm wearing um, a green setter sweater, and I'm wearing my brown velvet pants. Nice. <laughs> All right. So from the brown velvet pants of Tribeca, um, we are <laughs> we are moving over back actually to Abu Dhabi and across the campus, or perhaps across the city. Um, we are joined by Samantha Nugerbauer. Samantha, do you want to say hi? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Samantha, as Mary mentioned, and I am in Abu Dhabi. I am on an island called Reem Island, and I work with Marion, uh, and I oversee the Office of First-Year Students at NYU Abu Dhabi. Excellent. All right, team, here we go. Um, this is uh, probably going to be one of the most fabulous or most awkward conversations because we are so stretched out across the globe. Um, <laughs> This is a first for us to try to do it this way. Um, and we're also attempting a first in this the latest episode of The Slush Pile, and that is to discuss creative nonfiction. So we're going to be talking about a single piece tonight, and it's um, an essay by the author Keith Rebeck, and it's called The Art of Fishing, Working Against the Current. Um, and as our listeners may know, uh, the piece will be in our, um, on our podcast page and available there. So we highly recommend that you put us on pause and go have a read. Um, it's a fairly lengthy piece and it's worth your time and attention. Um, and it will help you as we, as we take on this conversation and make decisions about, um, the art of fishing. So some sort of music signifying time changing and passing. <laughs> and we're back. Well, okay. What was the way in Garth music where they were like, is that like too old? Right, seriously, like it should be that. All right. So um, I was wondering how you guys wanted to start this. It's our first piece of creative nonfiction. It's a, it's a long, long essay. Um, and as the readers and our listeners might know now by having taken a peek at, at it, it's in sections, in sort of chunks and vignettes. Um, so do you, maybe we should do some kind of a summary up front or perhaps even read a piece of it. What would you like to do? Summary. Well yeah, summary sounds good. All right. Well, you know what? Good luck, right? So anybody <laughs> want to try? <laughs> I mean, I could take a crack at it and say... Um, I'm surprised we're all so, like, shy on this. I, I thought everyone <laughs> else was going to be like, oh, yeah, I, I thought I was the only one who was sort of like, wow, this is, like, hard to talk about. But, okay, I'm not alone. Yeah, yeah no, I think it is. I think it's a little bit difficult to be in this genre. Um, all right, so... I'm just going to try and then I'm going to bounce it to anybody who's willing to catch this ball. So it, it strikes me that the art of fishing is 
uh, a series of vignettes about um, being a salmon poacher, what it means to be poaching salmon in Michigan. And it's, um, you know, told through a series of anecdotes and different angles on that uh, experience of, of taking fish from rivers, right? And taking, whether they're, you know, doing that legally or illegally. And then the, the universe of, of characters and people who are moving through that, that kind of, you know, fishing, that kind of practice. That's my, that's my attempt at a summary. Anybody else want to try? <laughs> um, so, I, I would also say that, um, and maybe this is already not summarizing, and maybe this is already analysis, but there's a way in which there's a lot of disturbing things that happen and a lot of like really, um, like sort of warts and all presentation of a particular culture that's, that, that isn't really commented on. Like it's, the, 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 the vignettes are really presented kind of in and of themselves. And so like the reader is sort of left with a lot of work to do. Yeah. Does that? Yeah, yeah we, we move through these moments of where they're, they're, they're not very good poachers either. And so right. they're, they're terrible. They're not good <laughs> poachers. They're not, they're terrible fishermen. They still honor this code of, fishing like when you have a hook on a uh, fish on the line people get out of your way so there's this like layer of honor that they have and so you go through these moments and then at the end you have um a scene where a uh, black some black people are fishing and uh there's an injury and the character has a realization about race and being white trash and i'm from alabama so i can say that <laughs> so it's you know he has this realization that um, that people shouldn't be treated a certain way. And then, and then it's over. And so we have then to piece through, um, it's not, this isn't really a summary, but it's just sort of what I see happening in the story. Well, I, you know what, I kind of love that this like prompt, right? Trying to summarize a really complicated piece. Like you can't help but slip into a kind of interpretive mode, right? Like that's a, a sort of like lovely um, problem, right? Of moving from trying to describe something into this realm of interpretation. And as I'm hearing, I think one of the, the facets of this piece is, is these difficult images that are being depicted, um, but depicted in a way that, that it's, it's, you're not getting a sense of judgment from the speaker, right? Until, and then if we get that judgment, it's at the end when he turns away from, from this passion, right? Or this obligation that is, you know, he's meant to be passionate about. But I don't know, Samantha, do you wanna, do you wanna get in on this? What, what did your, uh, how did you describe some, this thing? Something that I liked about this piece was how, he has this identity thrust on him by the grandmother in the beginning, and there seems to be some resistance. And then as he spends more time uh, doing these things with his uncle, with these other, other men in, in this world, he's, he does grow a type of passion for it. And I think it shows really like how when we embed ourselves in anything, we can become passionate about it. And it's not until the end where he really throws off that identity. But it makes you wonder if he hadn't been exposed in this way to it, forced to go on these trips that he maybe didn't want to go along to, would he have ended up in that same situation anyway or not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's really well said. It's like that Kurt Vonnegut um, line about how you become what you pretend to be. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Hmm. Because there's real resistance in the beginning, and I love that resistance. I think it's some of the strongest writing in it when he feels that he's in that age of embarrassment and everything. That's it's wonderfully done in this piece. Do you want to read yeah. that section? Because I'd actually really like to hear. Because it, yeah. it is really beautifully written. I mean, the prose is just I thought mm -hmm. muscular and gorgeous and straightforward and direct, but complicated and evocative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's read a piece. What are you thinking? We could read from the top, maybe one of the smaller sections. Mm -hmm. What you got? Um, I was thinking Rod is a sort of like manageable size. And I can okay. do that. Although I'd love to hear Samantha read um, from that mm -hmm. section she was talking about. Yeah, I could do that first if you want. Yeah, would you? Yeah, do sure. that, Samantha. Sure. Um, 
1984 Impala was so loud it shook teeth, and the interior stunk as if nightcrawler tubs had rotted underneath the seat since the car left the factory. When we rumbled out of my grandmother's drive, I pulled my hat bill down to avoid being recognized until we reached the city limits. I was 14. This is what 14-year-olds do. We're self-conscious of being caught by girls while hanging with 67-year-olds who stink of bait and have fish guts caked in their chinos and riding around in their shit cars. I love that. <laughs> so good. Mm-hmm. And then a little ways down, he zeroes in on that even more where he decides another, uh, you know, beautiful uh, girl, I'm assuming about his age, where he says, um, in the opposite lane, a station wagon with three high school girls in fluorescent bikini tops sang to REM's Man on the Moon. The brunette closest to the passenger side door adjusted the bikini string at the nape of her neck and the tan lines, ovate patches of white flesh, disappeared. So good. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I, can, I, can I read the, the excerpt, the, just this, I guess, what, the section called Rod? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the city dock casting a silver spinner the night the family of Mallards died. The August evening was cool and dark like the innards of a tire, and I'd been nipping a pint of peppermint schnapps since sundown. I threw the line out as the flock floated by, wings whistling and cutting the dark. Then the first mallard struck the power line, and the next, and soon the entire coterie plunged like stones into the water. I set the rod down and grabbed the fishnet, stretched the aluminum handle as far as I could, and scooped a mallard from the lake. The electrical cable stripped the skin from the duck's neck, leaving its muscles exposed like a heel in a torn sock. I dropped the dead bird onto the wooden planks and netted the rest. When I had all four lined in a row, a man in a blue Ford pickup pulled up over on the bridge, hit his hazards. He hustled underneath light poles along the dock where clouds of moss slapped the glass bulbs until he reached me. What you got there, he asked, and leaned down, petted the duck. These ought to go to the police. They're mine, I said. I netted them. Was yours he said. Besides, lying cool on miners drinking. The man looked around before gathering the ducks by their limp necks, where they hung from his hands like bowling pins. Then he hustled to his car and sped off in the opposite direction from the police station, and he stood there with an empty pint that glinted under a dock lamp and dreamed of a kettle of duck stew. There's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about how you should kill the animals that you eat and which animals you should and shouldn't eat. And uh, Mm. one of the biggest sins you can commit in the Old Testament is eating a found dead animal. Mm. And I feel like, or eating a strangled animal. And I feel like mm. it's a great image to depict what kind of savages these people are. I mean, these are both kind of like, he doesn't have to say that they're bottom of the barrel people. He just mm. had them taking home ducks they found dead to eat and then kind of just walks away. This, I really like this image here. I, I thought this passage was gorgeous. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I mean, it, it reads beautifully on its own. Um, and, and also in the context of the other pieces, this sort of like tessellation of, of you know, these, these pieces are juxtaposed, it's image next to image, and you get this sort of like weaving of, of culture and, and identity and awfulness and, and then just boredom and routine and desire, right? Like all of those things sort of like twirling into each other here. Um, but I, can we just, can we move to the hard thing here, which is, man, that scene with the black couple, the African-American couple fishing among the, as Tim puts it, these bottom of the barrel people, right? And we're, the blanket assumption is that they're, and, and this again is in air quotes, white trash, right? There's, it's, it's a horrific scene. Like one of the, one of the um, poachers slash fishermen is clearly agitated by the presence of this black couple. Um, and when the, the, ma- the man of the couple catches a fish and tries to reel it in, this you know, agitated white guy, right, uh, continues to fish, continues to fish. And when the black couple has gotten their fish out of the water, he flings his rod or he flings a, um, the, the, his pole such that the hook flings back and lodges in the woman's face hits her in the eye, right? Now that is grotesque, you know, and, and this is creative nonfiction. And I, I, I want to like just open, open a space in this conversation for um, 
for your judgment of this. Like how, how does this come across? What do you make of it here? How is it handled by this author? Um, discuss. Something I, that I think of. Oh, oh sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> Something I think of right away uh, as, well, that image is grotesque. Also what is grotesque is the premeditated nature of that, of that whole scene from um, the other white fishermen. And what really is bothersome is it reminds me of those kind of hor horrific uh, teasing or, or mutilation, um, you know, bullying tactics of children, not grown people. And I think that's what's so disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing is, the scene with, that we talked about with finding the dead ducks and then having the bird on the line later. And I, I, like, I like having the representation of these people you know, we wonder why Trump won. Well, we, yeah. this is a story about that in a lot of ways. And I think mm. in a lot of literary magazines, they shy away of writing, of publishing things by problematic characters because they want to they write about liberal characters and people who are non-problematic and well-adjusted mm. and all that stuff. So I love the fact that all of that is happening here and we get this really genuine view of this world. And then at the end, I feel like, the writer's trying to teach me a lesson, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of annoyed by that scene with the at, at the end the violence, because, you know, oh after, at the end he did he lost his his taste for fishing blah blah blah, you know I mean like so, it takes someone getting a hook lodged in their eye for him to all the other stuff is okay, I mean it's I feel like if you cut that scene out, then you have really a pretty good. Uh, essay or story or whatever you got about fishing and we can make up our minds about everything that's happening but at mm -hmm. the end it's I feel like uh, you know I don't need the lesson <laughs> to be honest mm -hmm. I, I, I know everything that I mean I think in our, our I think our readership knows I think mm -hmm. everybody knows I don't think we need the lesson and that I love the image I love the brutality of it but again because it's creative nonfiction and not fiction I wonder I, I, I have a little bit of trouble with being taught something like this. Are, are you saying that the lesson is in that final section where he reveals that he no longer wants to do this? Yeah. Because, I mean, I... Um, I so I'll, I'll just say, like, I the, the last scene with the racism and the... Um, fishing hook in the eye accident and because um, when I was reading the section I read I realized I could not do the voices I cannot speak in those voices and I think he captures them um, in a way that makes me aware that like that that doesn't come out of my vocal box but I in some weird jigsaw puzzle way like all of this is familiar to me from my boy scouting years mm. and down to the like the accident with the I mean not my eye but um, someone's eye and um, and I, I thought it was really important. I thought he handled it in a way that showed how no one was going to help them beyond what they did. That no one, like this guy who has driven the black people from his midst mm -hmm. um, is not going to be punished, is not going to be called on it, is not going to suffer any consequence. Mm -hmm. um, and that his decision is to leave that space, right? Um, so I, I actually thought that it was a really, I, I really was appreciative that the writer did not do anything to kind of interpret it, um, that he just kind of put it out there and, and it, just, it just makes it so clear. And, and yes, it made a lot of sense to me that like his turning point of, of witnessing the racist attack is that it ends the interchangeability, right? That there's, that he can grow up to be the guy who steals the other guy's ducks. Mm -hmm. That he can, you know, move through these different positions. But then part of what racism does is it insists that subject positions are not interchangeable. And his only option is to leave. So I, I was actually, um, 
I mean, I'm, I'm very disturbed by that section, but I also think that it's, it's handled in the right way. And, and I would agree with Tim that if there is a problem, it's in just sort of like walking away from it. And I would say that actually, if there's a way that tackle that section could end with that question that we could mull over. And if that meant taking something from the catch, because I really think it's not, for me at least, the, if there is an issue in this piece, it's not with the tackle section, it's with the catch, the, the thinking about it uh, yep. years later. Yeah. I agree with you. Totally. When I... In fact, oh, sorry. Oh, no. Yeah, when I read the catch, I was very disappointed, especially with that last two sen last sentence. Mm -hmm. it just, that, that last sentence on its own ruined the whole, the entire piece for me yeah. in a way. Um, I agree with you, though. I think that the problem is not with tackle. I think that's a that's one of the most important vignettes in here. Um, mm -hmm. But the catch, just trying to wrap it all up in a neat little bow and and be say, you know, these people exist, but I'm not one of them. And yeah, exactly. I would cut it even three lines before with the ambulance and police left. That next line is so heavy-handed. It's like as if we don't get it already. And I bet. Mm -hmm writer would take it back. I bet if the writer looked at this again in six weeks or six months, uh, he would think, yeah, I'm going to cut that out. Wait, 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 Tim, tell me where you're looking again. You're cutting in. in I, I would cut that'll teach niggers to fish because we get that. We get that that's what he's doing. And by using, I think if you're going to use that type of language, I think it's okay to make a point. I think it's totally fine, whatever language you need to make to make a point, but it better be the right point. It better not be a point they already get. You know what I mean? I disagree. I, th I think that's crucial. And I think that you can't shy away from it. And I think that when he says that and he clarifies, there is no ambiguity in what I have done here. Um, I, I think it's really, I, I, I would not cut that piece. I don't think it's not shying away from it. I think it's just, we already, we already know that that's what he's doing. And I think then it's kind of like he's, just in case we as readers, we as, as readers don't get it, this is what he's doing. That's the way I interpreted it. I, you know, I, I certainly don't think he should shy away from it at, at all. Or even if they said it earlier, I mean, I don't want to get ticky tack on editorial stuff, yes. but I just feel like at this point, it's such an, I mean, it really is an amazing image. I mean, I, this is the exact type of thing they would do, this sort of, this sort of uh, cheesy acting like you're not hurting somebody, but you know what's going to happen and you do it anyway. This type of thing a 13-year-old would do. And this is where there's this whole subculture is locked into that mentality. And so I think that image at the end is really amazing. So, but, and then those last three lines and then the catch for me, uh, take all of the, the tension out for me. Like all of everything I like, yeah. it just is like done. I agree. So I want to I want to jump in and say I think for me the the perfectly terrible terrifying image here is when the offending fisherman right the sort of racist fisherman is standing over this poor woman and continuing to eat the sunflower seeds right and mm -hmm. getting them on her he's spitting sunflower seeds and they're and the line is the man's fat seeds and when his shells rained upon the woman's head. Walter asked me, asked the man to please move back. So he did and went to his tackle box and tied on another chunk of lead with triple hooks while the paramedics and Walter lifted the woman onto a gurney and wheeled her off the dock. That is such hate, that is such a hateful gesture, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, just a hateful gesture. And, and it captures a kind of belligerent privilege, right? An ignorant privilege right? that is it's enacted here, right? And the, the black couple are just flattened into the into victims, right? So I I I absolutely take your point, Jason, right? That the the sort of volatile harsh language, the use of, of the N-word in this essay is something that needs perhaps to be unflinchable, right? Like if if we're gonna go there, then we need to go there because that's what they did. My beef with the story is in a kind of, um, uh, how, how do I put this? A kind of fuzziness around the I, like the first person pronoun I. So when you look at the catch 
And it's this like sort of stiff, squeaky hinge into years later. So now I'm going to make sense of these things. Pardon, pardon the time. Years later. Like there's, he, I get, I get the sense that this person is trying to make sense of the moment then, right? What I'm missing actually is where he was in the moment when he was in the moment, right? So part of the art of creative nonfiction for me when it's really fantastic is not just here's me now, here's me then, here's me making sense of myself then, right? But this sort of rendering of the I, right? as a sense-making eye back then. So when I look back over the, the, um, the tackle section, I'm, st I'm still craving a little bit of like, okay, well, where, so where was Keith in this? How was Keith in this? Like, as just the sort of like neutral observer of the event, right? So, so that when you turn to the catch, that sense-making moment, I want him making sense of himself in it too, right? Like, where, like, um, recognizing his own um, awkward uh, accidental complicity, right? Or it's just a little something more nuanced, right? In the grokking and sense-making of, of his role and his evolving identity. And this goes back to, I think, Samantha's point too, like that there's a way that his identity has changed through this experience and transformed, but I actually want more, more nuance in the rendering of that change. We know that the change happens when we read the catch, but we don't see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that would also help me. I'm not sure if it's the most important thing, but of getting a sense of his age uh, and his maturity at different times uh, of these vignettes. And I mean, his age and, and what, what I think might be his maturity level um, might not be the same actually as, as it truly was, but just getting some more of him in some of these places would at least let me, let me put him in a, a specific age bracket that I think would also enhance the story reading for me. I, I, I mean, I feel like um, we're asking for more self-examination and like, I definitely agree that the catch sort of fumbles that ball, um, that that final section kind of fumbles on really making sense of these pieces and just moves towards um, a disavowment rather than an engagement. But I think that part of what's going on here is that these are really unexamined people. Mm. And part of what's really compelling about each of these vignettes is that the, the kinds of analytical depth psychology that we're asking for it is completely alien to the I, characters who are being presented. And the, the, the value of the way he's presenting it is precisely that there isn't more self-examination, that it really is just kind of like, can I get the ducks or not? I totally agree. Don't, don't get me wrong though, let me just interject. I'm not asking for the, the, the cast of characters to be examining themselves. I'm asking for, the, for the, the I here, right? The author of this creative nonfiction, that's where I want the self-examination, right? So it's, it's placing a, a little bit um, more emphasis on the distinctions between what he knew then and what he knows now throughout the piece. So that's not about like the, the, the racist fisherman being more reflexive, right? It, it's about the Keith as the author of the piece making choices to indicate his own sense-making strategies. So the that's- eye, The eye is capable of self-examining because that's what yeah. he's doing here. Yeah. And if you want to make them non-self-examining people, just cut off the last page and call it fiction. And I think it works wonderfully. But if it's, I think as creative non-fiction, just to teach us this lesson about racism and cruelty, for me, it, it, it's just, it doesn't hit the notes for me as a reader. It hits an annoying note and not a pleasing note. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the result. But, you know, but, which is kind of sad and not really that sad because you could just cut off a little bit and call it fiction and it would be, it would be one of the, my favorite stories we read all year. You know, I mean, it's, which is, that actually brings up an interesting point about how to classify a piece of writing because fiction always comes from some place. It's always born of some experience that you're trying to come to, term, come to terms with, but then you just let things grow organically in whatever direction you want them to go. And nonfiction, you have to, I don't, I don't write nonfiction, but I, I, I 
I'm assuming you're trying to teach the readers a point about your messed up experiences. And then here I'm like, from the whole time, I think, got it. Yeah, got it. Thanks. You know, even though there's so many beautiful things about it. Does that make any sense at all? It does. I mean, I wonder if, I mean, the gravity of the race, of the violent racism in the final vignette reverberates back across everything that's come before. And so we're less likely to see the people as kind of, because I think there is a kind of innocence in the lack of self-examination. There's like a kind of innocence in, in and this will sound crazy, but in being the duck stealer mm. um, in the musical choices, that there's a, there's a kind of um, satisfaction and there's a kind of acceptance with life as it is. Mm-hmm. And then that final, um, vignette, which I, I think is really important, um, gives us a sense that this is actually really all predicated on someone's exclusion and someone's violent exclusion. Right, right. Um, someone's violent exclusion and erasure. And so this notion of innocence that's across a lot of the rest of the piece is undone. And I agree that the catch doesn't quite, um, that final, the final section doesn't enough to think that through mm-hmm. but, but I'm, I'm still really I, I still really respect this this piece of writing I'm still really yeah, yeah. And, I, and I also I mean I and again like I'll I don't want to be too I, I, when that happens to you like there is this kind of shock and like I, I do think that the kind of um, space that follows is it, it feels to me like a very accurate response, even if it's not, and, and maybe it, it's exactly the problem. Maybe it's exactly the response that, that perpetuates the violent exclusion that racism is, um, or the violent erasure and exclusion. Um, well, I, I don't know, like. Jason, yeah. I think something you said, um, the space that follows uh, really makes me look at uh, the catch. And I'm just going to read a line. Um, Years later, when Arnold's memory began to deteriorate and he was no longer able to fish or live on his own, he moved to Michigan to stay with my grandmother. And whenever I stop for a visit, he always asks. And it goes on as a summary. So he's summarizing all these spaces in time after this experiences. And I, after the, this horrific experience, and I really wish instead of summarizing, he just told us one. If he told us the first time or three times later, something like that, something that felt solid, I think it could be much stronger and maybe even have room for some of this heavy-handed self-examination. But because it's coupled with this summarization of many experiences with the grandmother and Arnold, it, it doesn't feel zeroed in enough to me. I wish he would make that space smaller. Are you saying that he doesn't change enough? Like he, at the end, instead of like living in a different part of the country or cutting mm-hmm. himself off from people, he just turns into kind of like a, a simpering goober who doesn't like to fish anymore? I just wish that I knew more. I wish the next vignette told me one story after, yeah. after what is it called? The tackle. Yeah. Instead of the summary. So I, I just want to jump in and say simpering goober might be the episode title. <laughs> I think that's going too far. No, I, because if you go, if you go before, uh, let's see, three lines before the catch, my, imagine, my, my image of this person is like, this person sees the cause of everything that leads up to this, like from a cruelty standpoint, and really is having this major shift where they're able to recognize cruelty. And it takes this much, but sometimes it takes a lot and takes this intense moment. And then we and then allow ourselves to imagine what this person does for the rest of their life. Instead, it's deflated and he's just hanging out and doesn't like to fish anymore. Okay, not, I don't mean, see, that's the thing. I'm not calling the writer a simpering goober because it's creative nonfiction, but however, you put it out there and that's the image I have in my mind. Yeah. And I don't think, I mean, no one who writes like this, you know, clearly there are a lot of 
many things going right in this person's aesthetic life. You know? Yeah. So and let me just be clear. Calling but, the author, I, I'm not advocating calling the author Simpering Goober. I just like that phrase. Um, what I love about it's a, good, it's a good episode title. I'll agree with it that. It is. It is. But I, in no way am I calling Keith Rebecca Simpering Goober. In fact, total respect, right? Because go back to the title for a second. It's the art of fishing working against the current, right? If we take this for, you know, the, the sort of the author coming into a recognition of the um, degrees of violence to which he's become sort of anesthetized, right? And almost like a little serial killer, you know, like f casting a fishing hook and catching a seagull and then like tormenting the seagull into, into death, right? There's a, there's a, I, and when I hit that point in the essay, I thought we were going in a different direction, like that this was going to be actually fiction and perhaps the confessions of a serial killer, right? Like with that, with that, um, the, the, the notion that, you know, these people who are able to murder folks often are torturing kittens on their way to those major crimes, right? Yeah. But here, so we, what we get in the sort of like juxtaposition of these images is this recognition, as Tim puts it, that, that um, man, like that the, the impactfulness of violence that you do need to make a stand, that you do need to make a break from it, you do need to make an, to extricate yourself from it, or you are not only benumbed by it, but you're you're normalizing it, right? And I think that's the tricky part. You're complicit, but you're normal. Like it's in even in writing about it without judgment, is there a, a quality of normalizing here, or is it so clear that the the author's judgment, right, is is a condemnation? And that's why I think the catch. It's that that last part is sort of like this turn towards condemnation. And I actually do think his writing begins to, to, to sputter here. It begins to um, like stammer towards meaning. He's, it's, not fully, it's not fully cooked yet. And, I, and for me, that, that starts to happen with, um, where, like, but in truth, after seeing a woman take a triple hook in the eye, I never had the courage to tell him that I'd lost the passion to fish. That I was never going to be the next Babe Winkleman, that he didn't have it in me to take him, you know what I mean? And I suppose like a scar, the memories will fade, right? And it's like, at that point, I'm like, wow, after all those rich images and all that fantastic language, I suppose like a scar, the memory will fade. No, it's not where I want to land. I, I wanted to land somewhere closer to what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? You know what I mean? Like turn back on the images and give me a way of re-seeing them that breaks my heart and also it it, un, it also undoes some of the work of the previous passage because what the previous passage does is really kind of like force you to look at the violated humanity of uh, the black woman and then once you know the scar is going to fade and my memory is going to fade you know there's this there's this way in which she's instrumentalized and becomes um, and her 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 incredibly horrifying imagery of uh, uh, um, injury um, just sort of turns into parallel imagery. Yeah. I think that, I think, that's I think that mess, that line, like a scar, the memories will fade shows that he's much more like these people than he cares to admit mm -hmm. because it's only through ignorant privilege that you can, you know, like, Oh, well one day mm -hmm. that memory of, blatant violent racism will I'll no longer have to think about it I'll no longer feel bad about it you know and wow. I think that's I, I that's interesting um I don't know yeah and, and also all of this type of meanness that's happening seems like really real to the type of meanness that's happening in our world today it's mm -hmm. like this petty like cowardly meanness like I was trying to think in my all, all the last couple of weeks I've noticed driving around Philadelphia from class to class that none of the pickup trucks who are driving slow will get out of the left lane. And I just think this is just, they're just being douches. They're just, this is on purpose. Traffic's backed up behind them. And there's just this sort of stubborn meanness where I'm not going to look at, I'm not going to think of people around me anymore. And I feel like something has shifted this year and probably because of the election. And I think these notes are hit in the, so yeah, so I mean, there's so much of that, that itself, as I was reading it, as I was driving today in the left line behind a pickup truck, thinking what is causing this madness. And then I read this story today and I think, oh, this is what's causing the madness. And then I get to the last yeah. paragraph and I'm like, oh, how did I get bored so quickly? Right.
Right. But I think there's something to be said for how we think of resiliency. And in this paragraph, well, I don't love the idea either of this experience fading like a scar, like a memory, but we always talk about resiliency, I feel, in good terms. You know, if a child loses a parent, children are resilient, or we can overcome these things. But maybe we can also be, or the, these people in this story can be resilient to these kind of horrors and, and get over them. And, and maybe that is a problem right now in our country. I feel like resiliency is the wrong word. I feel like this is rationalization. Mm -hmm. It's more accurate. Um, especially, I mean, like, I feel like we didn't talk about him yet, but the character Dougie, yeah. like that just shows that the, the, the eye in this piece is, is complicit. So, um, oh, yeah. wow. Right. So I don't, I don't, I don't see resiliency in here. Oh. Wait, so let's, for, the, for our readers and our listeners, right? So um, the Dougie character, so it's a section called bait. And the first line is, I'm, I'm going to read, I'll actually read the first two paragraphs or two little bits, right? It was a cruel act fucking with returns. I was loitering at Alan's bait and tackle watching Nick work when I spotted the chest slapper Dougie limping across the bridge, clutching a, stack, a, a sack of aluminum cans. Now I'll stop there for you know, many reasons, right? Like time is, is running short for us. We're um, you know, coming close to a, our 45 minute mark. Um, but I also wanna stop here because that line, it was a cruel act fucking with retards is in the voice of the author, right? So, mm -hmm like that's not a character speaking necessarily. And the, so here's the I, right? So, you know, hello. <laughs> so I think Sarah perhaps got a point about that complicity, right? And what do we, what do we make of that? Well, I, I, I get what it has. Um, I've, I've watched this. Um, mm -hmm. like, like this, this is a scene that I know really intimately. Um, and it's why, I, it's why I left. Um, and I could never speak about it. Um, and I think that the way that it's presented, like in that voice, um, and I think part of it is him kind of, I mean, I, I think that what doesn't happen skillfully enough between the final passage and the catch is the, is the slow coming to terms with, or the fast coming to terms with, um, needing to not be this person anymore. Yeah. Right? needing to not be in this culture anymore, needing not to be of this. Um, and so I, it doesn't bother me um, that it, it uses the word retard. It, it just, because that is, I think, an accurate representation of how he thought about it. And even as he knows that he's doing something terrible, um, it just doesn't register. It's just not, you know, it, it's, so I, I mean, I, I, I will defend that as um, a really crucial piece of the essay in which we're supposed to be really disturbed right. by what the reader's doing, but also understand it in the context of a culture that doesn't find it disturbing. Right. Exactly. I agree with you. But again, it just shows that, is there growth? Like, I don't see growth in this character at the end. And I think the catch is trying to show that he's grown, but I don't, I don't see that, and I don't, I don't get that. But again, is that necessary for this piece to be successful? And I mean, I feel like every time I try to imagine what that would look like, I can't do it. Every time I imagine, it's sort of, you know, okay, so if he has a section where he says, okay, so I was a really terrible person, and I realized that um, the entire culture that I was living in was predicated on a kind of racism and a kind of um, hierarchy in which people were blinding themselves to their own poor circumstances by glamorizing forms of violence and exclusion. Like it just, it just turns into this kind of, um, it, 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 it stops being, nonfiction like it sort of stops being created nonfiction and it turns into um what i what i would like politically to happen to his consciousness and i i don't know i mean it's i mean i know it's up to the reader and i, I just want to say that if we don't take this um more than any other piece that we've looked at we're not taking it because it's in process 
and we really believe in the continued revision of it. I mean, I agree with you. I can't imagine how he would finish the story or the essay either, but really that's the job of a good writer is to finish it in a way that you never imagined was possible. Find those notes and do it. Because it refuses piety. Like, I mean, what's, what's great yeah. is that it refuses any kind of piety in telling these stories, but then at the end it makes this gesture towards piety that isn't sufficient. I, 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 the decision, I mean, when you write prose, you make a decision at some point whether you're writing a piece of fiction or nonfiction. And I feel like if, if this story is fiction and the last part of it's cut off, everything that this wants to accomplish as nonfiction is accomplished without any of the deflation that suffers with it as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I feel like um, it's, just a, it's almost just a matter of genre because if you, sh- you flip it genres, it really has a really profound effect on this piece. You know, we assume, because it, it suggests that these characters are going to change and we can let them change any way we want to. But at the end, he's changed into somebody who doesn't like fishing anymore. And um, I, don't, I don't know what else. Yeah. So I just, I think I want to, I would love to say, I'm not necessarily advocating for the kind of like reflective exposition sort of, and now I know that, that Jason just sort of um, explained for us or performed for us. Rather, rather, I think if this is creative nonfiction and we keep it in that genre, what I'm looking for again is more explicitness at the level of sense-making in those moments. So what am I talking about? I'm thinking about Major Jackson's poem, Pest, which um, describes a scene on a Philly corner uh, where the, the speakers recalling being um, stopped and frisked by a Philly police officer, right? And in the, in the moment of the poem, he's got, you know, the speaker's got his ear pressed against the side of a building and he's listening to like the crunch and munch of like termites inside the building. And then he and the officer share, share a moment of, of connection, right? Not just to like the sort of like physical um, uh, scene of, of, you know, having your arms swung behind your back first the left and right, but also just in, in this moment of, of being um, like perhaps thought, like thoughtful, right? So what he does in that poem, right, is describe me a moment of being frisked by saying, my first thought was of Swiss cheese, right, hardening on the diner. My second thought was of, of these termites, right? And so he does this, like, first thought, second thought, like, structure to, to get at the complexity of what his mind's doing in the moment. Now, for, 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 for what it's worth, like, that, that, that feels like a little bit, dialed so low in this piece that the move to sense making at the end it feels desperate like it is a desperate move to make sense of of all that's happened and to sort of distance himself right from from these images but um i think what i'm advocating for is moving some of that thinking and sense making in to the piece and, and marion you're making me think about um your essay about professional wrestling in which you are able to kind of talk about that culture as someone who's been in it and someone who's been reflective about it and kind of move between these different registers of understanding. And you do that really thoughtfully and carefully. And there's no point at which um, you misrepresent anyone. Orwell does it too in Shooting an Elephant in Marrakesh where he just has a moment where he realizes the the uh, enormity of the problem. And he doesn't have a solution. He just uh, um, shows a moment of understanding of what is happening. And, you know, later he goes on, you know, in in his later books, he talks about how he went through a year of, you know, uh, self-imposed homelessness because of his guilt and all that and dives into all that stuff. But in those essays where he's talking about watching people being hanged and beaten and stomped by elephants, he just sort of, brings it all into, into one big view, you know? So, I mean, I don't think he, he has to, to preach at the end of the essay here. Just, just, just something else that doesn't leave us kind of deflated. Should we vote? Yeah. We're almost out of time. <laughs> I also kind of wish that he could use a different 
Dolly Parton song than Jolene, but that's a little. I love Jolene. <laughs> oh, I like this song, but the, it's kind of a easy pick. The REM one's an easy pick, but that works. Marion. But anyway, I don't. That's the podcast. But but yeah, this would um. Those are minor, minor details in a sort of like. Okay. Huh? All right, so Marion has returned. I'm waiting on on some votes from the internet in the chat. Hey, I'm back. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep. Sorry about that. Okay, good. So we are voting currently. Okay. That is a no. Oh, okay. So that's a reluctant no. Um, Definitely reluctant no. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you all. Apologies that the um, interwebs cut me off here. Um, uh, but thank you to Keith and, and thank you so much for submitting this piece to us. Boy, was that an interesting conversation about genre, racism, voice and identity. And, and I really hope we see another version of this. I really hope that we get to look at this again. Oh, boy. So yeah. Do I. yeah, I so, think there should be a letter written saying that, you know? Well, I'm, I'm hoping, you know what? I'm hoping that Keith gets a chance to sort of hear this conversation too, um, just to take all of that in to see how it manifests on the page for him because he's, it's, I, I, yeah, it's, it's quite strong. It's really, really quite strong. Um, yeah. I think that's the hardest vote we've ever had. Yeah. I think that might be true. Okay. Well, team awesome. Thank you so much for your time and attention um, and for discussing this, this wonderful piece that's got us so perplexed and touched. Um, Sarah, lovely to hear your voice. Tim, lovely to hear your voice. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. And Jason, as ever, thank you for being in this conversation. Um, to our listeners, you can always go to our uh, podcast notes and check out um, the texts and the pieces that have been posted there. Um, and let us know what you think. Drop us a line, drop us a, a note, and keep on listening. And write when you can. Thank you. Drexel University's Office of Information, Resources, and Technology, and the Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. This podcast is the property of Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. All rights reserved.